Hello, everybody, and welcome to my final episode of How I Teach Golf. Um, I had been at Wentworth for just over a year. I'd pretty much exhausted all the seminars in the UK, read a lot of books, um, seen a lot of people teach. So I decided in 2002 with uh, a couple of guys from uh, Wentworth, another guy called George Porter from North Hans to go over to the US and watch the PGA of America's Teaching and Coaching Summit. And we saw Butch Harmon and Chuck Cook and Martin Hall and a couple of other guys. And everything was fantastic, learned a bunch. So we decided to go back again in 2004. And I hadn't heard anything really new in golf instruction and uh, listened to a couple of our other guys speak. First of all, we saw Stan Utley and there were some other guys. And then there was... There was this guy coming on called Jim Hardy, and I didn't know who he was. And uh, so I read his biog, and it looked as though he'd worked with John Jacobs. And I knew John from Wentworth because of the work he'd done with uh, Bernard Gallagher, and I'd met John a few times. So I thought, well, this guy would be pretty interesting, but I've, I've not heard of him. And then I didn't blink or move for the next hour and 20 minutes. Um, this guy continues to this day, 15 years later, to blow me away. Um, just some guy that uh, helps people give better golf lessons. He's a mentor to me, a really good friend, and a, a very much a father figure. So um, I'd like to introduce Jim Hardy. Jim, how are you? I'm, I'm very humbled by that introduction, Duncan. Uh, that's uh, that's the minimum I could uh, I could do. You've done so much for Jim, for me, Jim. Um, not just on the golf course or on the lesson tee, you know that you've helped me a lot with uh, things in my life and uh, I owe you a deep, uh, deep, deep gratitude and deep thanks to you. So um, I'm really looking forward to this and this is why I wanted it to be my last show because I think there's a lot of people who don't know, don't know you. Um, so if you wouldn't mind sharing with uh, the, me and the listeners, how did you get into the game of golf? Where did it all start for you? Did you play any other sports? And how did you end up pretty much on the PGA Tour? Wow, that, that covers a fair amount of ground, Dunks. Uh, I grew up in, in central Kansas uh, in a small town, uh, around 32,000 population, but it was a golf nutty town. Uh, there were four or five, actually five golf courses uh, in this little town of 32,000, and they were all very crowded. And okay. uh, so golf was, golf was a big, big sport in my hometown growing up. Uh, I was fortunate. I was uh, uh, blessed with, with some athleticism and played all the sports. I played basketball. I played uh, lots of baseball. And uh, I took up golf because someone uh, told me when I was about 15, uh, it was between several farm harvests. It was actually between wheat harvest, which occurs in June in Kansas. And uh, then you quickly go into some apple picking and things like that. We we're waiting for milo harvest and had been doing baling hay and someone said well you can make pretty good money caddying i said what is caddying <laughs> you know and so i was introduced to golf through caddying and 
I didn't, we, we, we didn't have any money. And uh, in fact, my family didn't even have a car. Uh, first television set we had was a small little one that I bought. And uh, so all, all my money really uh, that I would earn really went into my mother and my sister and I, just three of us. And uh, uh, there was a golf professional there that at this public golf course, it was kind of like a Pied Piper, uh, loved kids. And Hutchinson, Kansas, where I grew up, uh, we would win the state golf championship every year uh, in high school uh, because of this man. And he came to me one day and he noticed that, that I never played. Uh, I didn't have the money for a green fee. Uh, but I would wait to caddy, and while, while waiting on caddying, I had put together a, oh, a club or two I'd found somewhere, like kids do, and, and a sack full of balls, and I would just hit balls and wait until somebody needed a job. And, and he showed me a grip, and then he, the next day or two, he'd come out, and he'd see that I had it exactly like he had said, and then he showed me something about the backswing and came back a couple of days later and I had it exactly like he had asked and so on. And after about three or four weeks, everything he told me, I, I did exactly. And he said, well, why don't you ever go out and play? And I was too embarrassed to tell him that we didn't have the money. I didn't, couldn't afford to play. So I told him, <laughs> told him big fib. I said, I just enjoy all this hard work practice. Uh, <laughs> but he found out my circumstances and, and he told me, he said, Jim, he said, I'll make a deal with you. Uh, as long as I'm the golf professional here, you'll never have to play, pay to play golf as long as you do what I ask you to do. Well, that was a heck of a deal for me. That was easy. I'd do anything he asked me to do. And uh, his name was Harold Hoffman and he became my mentor. Uh, in life and in golf and uh, and to so many young men he did and I went on uh, I quickly fell so much in love with golf that I quit playing basketball I quit playing baseball and uh, I won the state championship in golf and our team did and I went on to win enough local tournaments that Oklahoma State the coach at Oklahoma State a man named Laburn Harris Sr. he uh invited me down and summer after my senior year in high school and I went down and, and played with him and met the team and he said he wanted me to come down there and uh, he'd give me a scholarship and I did and uh, that was life-changing you know I, I can remember when I when I met him we were at dinner that night he said what do you want to do with your life what do you want to study and I said well I said I I really want to probably go into pre-med and go to medical school. And he said, well, he said, golf would be out for you then because uh, uh, we, we practice in the afternoons and all the labs for med students are in the afternoon. So you wouldn't be able to play golf. He said, have you ever thought about the fact that you might want to play the PGA Tour sometime? Well, of course I did, and, and every young man would want to who had had even a little bit of success. And, and I said, yes, I said, that would be a dream, but I, I don't know if I'd ever be that good. He said, well, Jim, if you come to school at Oklahoma State, I promise you you'll play the tour. 
well, golly, what a hook. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he had me snagged and netted and landed uh, with that. And and sure enough, luckily for me, I did go to Oklahoma State. We won a national championship there, and I was fortunate enough to make All-American. And uh, that that meant that, that you needed to go try and play the tour. And I had to go in the Army first for a while. Uh, but after I got out, I went to the qualifying school and uh, got, got my card. And I played for just under seven years on, on the PGA Tour. Uh, I have to say it was, was not an earth-shaking record. Uh, I was always a poor putter because I suffered from a neurological disorder called essential tremor, which I had inherited from my mother who had, had been a concert harpist and had to quit playing the harp professionally when she was in her late thirties because her hands had started to shake and she was starting to, to hit the wrong notes, which is not something you can do if, if you're, if you're a professional musician. And, uh, by the time I got on the tour, I was hitting a lot of wrong notes with the putter. I was I was a good hitter, uh, but not a good putter. And as as I got older, the the putting problems got worse. And and finally, they were to the point where I kept having this reoccurring dream that I was on the seventy second hole at Augusta National, and I had a about a three footer, three and a half footer from just the right of the hole. It's a right center putt. If you get it outside the hole, it'll go by. I kept, I had that putt to win the Masters. And I would putt it and I would miss it. And I'd look up and I'd say, could, could I try it again? <laughs> and uh, I, was, I was nicely told, yes, sure, go ahead and try it again. And I, I would keep trying it and I'd never make it. And one day I woke up and I went, uh, you know, that dream's true. If I had a chance to win the Masters, uh, I couldn't make the putt. My hands would betray me. And it was the next day I decided to uh, leave the tour because I, I, I knew I was just a journeyman. And I, I, I didn't want to be just a journeyman. That's not why I'd played golf in the first place. I wanted to be the next Jack Nicklaus and I could see that wasn't going to happen. And so I did what most young men did. I, I, I was very fortunate. I got a very fine job at a Donald Ross design golf course, private club in Chicago called Exmoor country club. And, uh, Golly, I'd been there about two months when I realized there wasn't anything about being a club professional that I liked except teaching, and I had no idea how to do that. And uh, I knew how I had played golf, and I knew what the problems in my golf swing were. (laughs) Unfortunately, I didn't have anybody at the club that swung the club like I did. And so I I decided I need to learn how to teach because it, it was... Uh, it was the only thing that fascinated me about, about the profession, really, at that point. And so I started reading books. And I actually took a speed reading, took a couple of speed reading courses just so I could read more books quickly. And after probably devouring 30 books or so, 
uh, and I, I would go into bookstores and used bookstores and antique bookstores looking for old golf books. And I was reading everything I could find. And I started to take the common threads I would read and start trying to apply them. Well, obviously, that helped me some. In other words, I, I, I could start to understand a little bit. But basically, I got confused because I would read quite a bit of conflicting information in these golf books, as you and I both could can well understand. Mm-hmm. And uh, about that time, this is now a couple of years later, I met a gentleman who was with uh, Golf Digest. And he said, Jimmy said, uh, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I, I don't want to be a club pro, but I want to teach. I, I'd started to become a little better, but I'd like to figure out a way to make a living doing this. And he was the head of Golf Digest Golf Schools. And he said, well, he said, I'd love for you to teach in the schools, and, uh, but there's a man I want you to meet because your mind works along the same lines his does. And I think you two would get along great. I said, well, who is that be? And he said, well, he's from England. His name's John Jacobs. And he's going to be in America uh, for golf school. And I'd like you to come audit the golf school and meet him. And uh, I did. And I can remember after watching him that first morning, I had lunch with uh, this man from Golf Digest. His name was Cal Brown. And I remember having lunch with him at lunch. And I said, you know, Cal, I, I had always figured that someone out there had it cold, uh, that, that, that they weren't just throwing darts on the board and hoping they hit the bullseye, that they really understood how to help anybody in the game of golf. And I said, I found him today. Uh, I knew from the opening clinic when John Jacobs said that helping a golfer is all about understanding his mistakes from a ball flight perspective, then understanding that mistake from an impact perspective, what was the club doing to hit the ball that way? Then looking in the swing, what was happening in the swing that caused the club to cause the impact to cause the ball flight? And then finally, why and how to fix it? So it was kind of, I laugh, I kind of say it's the 12 days of Christmas there. In other words, you start <laughs> backwards. And, and my prejudice uh, as, a, as a teacher, not knowing really that information had always been to look at a golf at a golfer and understand what was wrong with his game from a swing shape perspective. And I, I would get very confused because I came up in a day before there was video and a lot of stuff. And I mean, I was looking at Jack Nicholas and Lee Trevino and Gary Player and and nobody had a classic golf swing. You know, I guess Gene Littler, some people might have said he did, but, and Sam Sneed was in his 60s, and so was Hogan, and they weren't around. So you were seeing all these kind of funky golf swings out there, and they were just beating the tar out of me. And, <laughs> and, and as a player, 
my perspective and prejudice had been the flight of the ball. If I was hooking or slicing or hitting the ball too high or too low or what have you, I had adopted a teacher when I played the tour uh, named Harvey Pennick. And you'd come and Harvey would watch you hit a few balls and, and, and he would give you a piece of instruction, whatever you want to call it, that would get you to quit hitting in the heel or quit hitting it thin or fat or hooking or whatever the problem was. And so I really didn't know what my swing looked like, could, could care less what it looked like. And when John Jacobs stood up that first morning, I heard him and he said, I believe that the sole purpose of a golf swing is to produce a correct impact. The method employed is of no significance as long as it is repetitive. Wow, that struck chords with me. I all of a sudden said, I've, I'm all ears. And I did not move, breathe, or anything for the next four hours listening and watching John teach. Uh, because his teaching reflected my playing. And my teaching had never reflected my playing. When I say that, I played from a position of correcting my impact of my ball flight. I didn't understand how to do that as a teacher. And that gift that John gave me that said, I remember he used to say, the first step towards becoming a great teacher is you stop hurting people. And I used to laugh and say, wow, that's a heck of a thing to say, isn't it? Uh, they haven't helped anybody, but at least they're, they're not dying because they came to you. <laughs> uh, but that is the truth. Because so often I see people's grips change and postures change and ball positions and back swings. And we're all going to have our left hand bowed shut today. Or we're all going to uh, leap up in the air in the downswing or what. And, and I was... I, Again, I was coming from Arnold Palmer didn't look anything like Jack Nicholas, who didn't look anything like Lee Trevino, who didn't look anything like Gary Player. And those were the four best players. And if they weren't throw in Tom Weisskopf, he didn't look anything like they did. And so I, I realized very early on, because of John, that foundation he had given me, that the game of golf is not about creation. We're not creating golf swings. We are correcting golf swings. We are making them better through correction. And that Ben Hogan, when he was failing, and Ben Hogan, when he was winning, still looked like Ben Hogan. And Arnold Palmer was the same, and Jack Nicklaus was the same. And so each one of those players became great players with the golf swing that was fairly appropriate for them, how they, how, how they stand, how they walk, how they, how they play golf, how they swing their arms, how they turn their body. And what they needed to do was to keep improving their ability in two areas, either to make their impact better 
or to make it more repetitive. And this business where you take young people and tell them when they're gotten through college and they're a heck of a good player, now they're ready to go on the tour, son, you're doing it all wrong. We got to remake your golf swing. We have to create, recreate your golf swing. That's just nuts. I think, uh, and that was what John, I've taken a little bit on from where John left off, but John's the foundation of, of uh, everything I believe in golf. So that um, that morning, you were, if I'm right in saying you were there with, with Carol? You know, that's where I first met Carol at that golf school is exactly right. Uh, Carol was there because uh, the magazine was going to start golf schools directly marketed at uh, women golfers. And Carol was a, a beautiful, fabulous, very smart uh, Hall of Fame golfer who was uh, winding down her career as a player and wanted to start teaching. And uh, so she was there also auditing, if you will, uh, that that school uh, in order to kind of try and be, start to become a make that transition from player to teacher herself. And then, am I right in saying that you're, did you have an interview with John with regards to you had to give a golf lesson in front of him or something <laughs> like that? Yes. <laughs> John, uh, you know, John asked me a couple of things. Uh, he asked me, he said, uh, where do you stand when you give a golf lesson? And I I was kind of embarrassed about that one. I didn't know what to say because almost every lesson I had ever gotten, including from Harvey, was face on. They would stand out at the golf ball and watch me from there. And I felt inadequate as a teacher simply because I wasn't good enough to see some of the things that was very important to me, which was where are they aiming? Are they really aiming at their target? What's, what's the direction of their backswing? What's the direction at the top of their swing? What's the direction in the downswing? What direction did the golf ball take off in and how did it fly? In other words, there was a lot of information that I thought was important. If I looked down the line, if I stood on the, on, on their line, on where they, uh, so I could look and see that. About the only thing I could see face on was I could see their grip and I could see their ball position uh, and I could see their weight and their weight shift. Uh, but I couldn't see any of the important things about the golf ball. And so I'm sitting there <laughs> and he asked that question and I'm, going, I wonder where he stands. You know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> and I'm ruminating that around. Finally, I thought, ah, hell. And I said, you know, I said, I, I'm embarrassed to say this because I, I think it makes me, it points out how inadequate I am as a teacher yet, but I stand down the line. And John said, hmm, that's interesting. And I went, oh, man, I picked the wrong one. <laughs> He said, now, why in the world do you stand down the line? 
and I told him what I just said to you. You know, I see all these things. And he turned around to Cal Brown, and he just looked at him and said, this one, he'll do. <laughs> and I was hired. <laughs> and that, how long did that last, Jim? How long did you work with, with John or... You know, well, doing the golf guys, bits and pieces. We were together about three years before uh, Golf Magazine uh, got out of the We had switched over from Digest to Golf Magazine. The Golf Magazine got out of the of the golf school business, and so I went to Golf uh, a Golf Magazine and said I'd like to continue these golf schools. And I will give you editorial support out of these golf schools if you'll give me uh, advertising support. And so we worked out a deal, and I got all the names from all the golf schools, that people that they had ever sent information out to. I got all the mailing lists, is what I really needed. And so I started the John Jacobs Golf Schools in America. And... Another fellow and I, my, my freshman coach in college was a man named Shelby Futch. And Shelby and I started the John Jacobs Golf Schools. And golly, they're still running today. Uh, Shelby owns them. Uh, I, I sold my uh, interest in them to Shelby years ago. But I continued on. I actually ran the John Jacobs Golf Schools. For about three years. And about that time, I was getting burned out of doing golf schools. I was getting burned out of the management end of it, the financial end of it, uh, you know. Uh, and fr quite frankly, didn't, did not want to teach in a golf school environment anymore. I, and I was starting to teach a number of touring pros. And so I sold my part of the business to Shelby. And John was getting a little less enthusiastic about a lot of trips to America anyway. And so I, I left the, the schools. Uh, John and I still remain close to one another and would correspond with each other. Uh, but slowly, our correspondence drifted apart, not so much out of any disillusion of how much we truly cared for one another. I, I, I cared for John like a son to a father, and uh, he did to me. We were, uh, we were that close. And to say I considered him my mentor would be probably a gross understatement. He was, he was so much in my life, and not only about uh, how to teach golf, but far more how, how the kind of person you want to be publicly and privately. John was a wonderful man. And uh, John took so many people in under his wing uh, and gave back so much to the game. It's just unbelievable. And I was so lucky to have these <clears throat> mentors I had, John being the great one, Harold Hoffman, my original guy that wouldn't take, say no to anybody who wanted to improve in golf. And all these kids 
and what he gave. And of course, Harvey was a, was a wonderful man too. And so I was very blessed to, to meet people whose goal was, was to keep improving what they do, but to keep passing it on. And that's certainly what you and Chris and George and John Vallelay and Kevin Flynn and so many people uh, that I've come in contact to are like-minded in that regard. But that's, um, there's a thread, what I'm hearing from you, Jim, there's a thread that, like you said, from Harold Hoffman through to John and from Harvey Pennick that they were only too willing to pass on their knowledge and experience to people with a passion about helping other people improve the game of golf. And that's what I've always, I got that from you when you first did your speech in 2004. I went back and got the videotape from the teaching and coaching summit in 1990, which if any golf coaches are out there and they haven't seen it or they haven't heard it, they just got to listen to it. Um, but you've always been so gracious and so willing to pass on. I think what you learned from them with that being part of your makeup, being so willing and happy to pass on to people like myself and everyone else that you've, that you've mentioned that your reach throughout golf has just been so enormous. And that's, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on here. Cause I wanted, I want to, I want to just, hear some of the stories that I love hearing so much about how much passion and love for the game of golf that, that you've, you've, you've had for so many years and just willing to pass that on to others, which I think is just an unbelievable trait, which I hope I can convey with the lessons that I give going forwards. Well, thank the, you. Um, thank you. Thank you. That's, Jim, can you tell the story about, <laughs> At one of the golf schools where you tried to, um, where you thought you had John. Oh my! <laughs> John was so good. When when we do a five day golf school, uh, we would open that day, and we had a little bleacher set up, and uh, there'd be about thirty people in the school, and they'd be divided into into uh, four sections of seven or eight in each section uh, depending on handicap but anyway at the, at the opening clinic they'd all be there and john would talk about uh, ball flight and impact and things uh, that he felt very passionately about and and then he would ask for someone he had never seen or given a lesson to before and you know lots of hands had come up and They'd bring them down, and, and John would ask what his handicap was and, uh, you know, a little bit about his golf. And then John would walk up over to the right or left, over to the side, and he'd walk up and he'd turn his back on the golfer. And he would then have, he'd say, okay, boys, go ahead and uh, uh, let's have him hit a driver if he possibly could. And uh, so he'd, he'd hit a driver or whatever, and John would give him a golf lesson without ever seeing his swing with his back. And it would always be correct. I mean, John would, would and the guy would immediately start hitting it better without John seeing him. Well, 
one day I went down to the range early to make sure that the, the staff, we were in Innisbrook, Florida, and to make sure the staff at the club there had gotten the range set up correctly and everything was fine. And, and uh, there was a guy down there hitting balls in our range area. And I went over and nicely told him that this was set up for a golf school that we were going to have and that he was welcome as could be to hit balls, but he'd have to do it at the other end of the range. And he said, oh, no, he said, I'm in your golf school. And so I introduced myself to him and I watched him hit a ball and and he was a left-handed golfer. And not only was he a left-handed golfer, he was what we call a dancer. Uh, meaning that as he came down, he was kind of gave it a bubble Watson. As he came down in his downswing, he picked his lead foot up in the air and swung around back to where his chase would, his chest would face the target and hit a big slice. And I went, oh, you're just perfect. We've got a left-handed <laughs> dancer here. I said, John's going to give a little opening clinic and then he's going to ask somebody uh, that he's never seen before. He'd like to come down and give a lesson. And I said, I want you to just sit here on the front row. And when he says that, I want you to volunteer and just pop right up there. So, <laughs> so to make a long story short, sure enough, John asked for his volunteer. Sure enough, this fellow popped right up and, and John told him he wanted him to hit some balls and John wouldn't, wouldn't watch and he'd walk up and give him a lesson. So John walked up and turned his back and this guy got out his left-handed driver and he hit a big banana slice. And John didn't say anything and he said, uh, are you sh finally said, are you sure that's a driver and not a three wood? And I was the one that was kind of doing it. I said, no, John, it's a driver. Uh, have him hit another one, please. And so he hit another, and boy, he hit another just big old beautiful slice. John stood there for another minute without saying anything, and they said, boys, it's not nice to try and fool John. We've got a <laughs> left-handed dancer. And I went, no! <laughs> no! And he proceeded to give him a lesson that I'd never seen him. So I sidled up next to John at lunch, and I said, John, you had to peek. You had to see that one. He said, no, I didn't. I said, how'd you do it? And he said, I heard it. I said, did you hear him dancing? You know, Jerry's flying <laughs> around, what? He said, no. He said it was a massive slice that was hit so shallow, it was unbelievable. He said, I knew the first ball was a slice, simply because you cannot, this is back in the days before metal clubs, said you can't hit a, a hook that big with a driver and have it stay in the air. It would be a duck hook. It would have so much top spin, it would fall to the ground. And he said, this one had lots of backspin. It was holding in the air. So he said, I knew immediately that that's a left-hander. And he said, and I just had him hit that second one to make sure I heard a shallow impact when he hit that ball. And he said, that's how I knew he was an answer. Now, that's how good John was. <laughs> and then 
Jim, you, you then used to quiz John quite a lot, usually not at lunch, but in the evenings when the golf schools were over and you'd be talking about golf and bits and pieces. So can you can you reveal a little bit about what you used to discuss? Was it like golf course design? Because I know you've got, I know there's so many different aspects to your your career that I probably can't touch in a in a podcast because it would be about 12 hours long. Uh, but you... You know, John designed golf courses, you designed golf courses, but am I right in saying that Pete Dye was one of your great influences with regards to golf course architecture? Well, he but was. Did you just think with John? And he, he was, and John and I did talk quite a bit about golf course design because John designed quite a few golf courses. I've been mm-hmm. fortunate enough to be involved in the, in the design of, of over 40, actually 46 golf courses. And I have a contract with the PGA Tour uh, that anytime they need to renovate uh, any of their or re, or just in, in fact completely re, redo any of their TPC tournament players club properties, uh, I'm called in as the consulting architect on the renovation simply because I was a former player, teacher, and an architect. And John and I used to talk about design and what we liked seeing and what we didn't like seeing. Uh, but one of the great conversations life turning conversations for me uh, happened with John and and John taught what he arguably called uh, a two-plane golf swing in which the body turned relatively horizontal to the ground while the arms swung more vertically up and down and that was what we taught. Uh, one of the problems with a two-plane golf swing, though, because it's more vertical, uh, is there isn't a pronounced arc at the bottom, and people come down with the face very open to the path they're swinging on, and then they close it coming through. And as a result, of that more upright club going from open to close rather rapidly on that path, uh, people who swing pretty upright usually have to curve the ball quite a bit. I call them shot makers, if you will. But Nicholas was very famous for uh, playing prof- decidedly left to right. Uh, Bubba mm-hmm. plays a decided slice off the tee and a hook with his irons. Uh, uh, Tom Watson uh, usually almost exclusively played hooks that way. And uh, I remember taking high handicappers at our golf schools. And they would come in on a Monday, a high handicap. I mean, he'd be slicing. And he'd get his instruction from John. And by Monday evening, that slice had turned into a manageable fade. By Tuesday noon, that manageable fade was now hitting straight balls. And by Tuesday evening, uh, he was starting to draw it a teeny bit. And he was very pleased. And by Wednesday noon, that draw was now, he was now hooking some. And uh, by Thursday morning, he was hooking them badly. And John would squeeze his right hand on top of his left thumb if he was a right-hand golfer and he said i want you to put a lot of pressure right there during impact and i want you to make a mark on the floor to the left 
and uh, uh, by Thursday night, Friday morning, that big bad hook had gone away, and now he's hitting a disc straighter than an arrow, and by Friday noon, he was back slicing. (laughs) 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 That was kind of how I saw golf. Uh, and and John used to talk to us. He said, "Well, golf is not a static game." He said, "It's like life." He said, "Golf is is like you're in a boat, and you're headed for the opposite shore, a lighthouse on the opposite shore. Except there comes up a heavy wind and a heavy sea, and if you just aim at the lighthouse, you're never going to get there. You." You've got to adjust and you've got to steer to the left of the lighthouse if the wind's coming from the left side. And if all of a sudden the wind stops, now you've got to change your aim. And, and he was saying that, that any time you, you take something and go too far down the road with it, I'll say you're trying to get something to hit more from the inside and you take it too far down the road, pretty soon that inside goes from a nice little draw to a bad hook and that then you have to reorganize and get him trying to hit fades. And uh, sure enough, if he goes too far down that line, uh, that fade might turn into a wipe, uh, uh, something we don't want. And I accepted that to a point. And the point was that I had played, uh, in the seven years I played the tour, I had become very good friends with George Knutson. And I had actually won my first professional tournament I ever won. It wasn't an official tour tournament, but I had beaten uh, Lee Trevino. And I I realized that every time I saw Lee Trevino play, it was the same ball flight. Same golf swing, same ball flight. Never, Never saw him one day when he couldn't hit it dead solid and hit that little push cut. And Knutson would hit it almost cold dead straight every time. And it didn't make any difference what day it was. It looked the same and the ball was the same. And I can remember when Sneed used to come out and play some on the tour in his 60s. Uh, all the tour players <laughs> would stop what they were doing on the practice team and go watch Sam because it's mesmerizing. He made this massive turn both directions, back and through, this wonderful rhythm and just smashed it every time. And it either went dead straight or just fell a little bit right to left. I was lucky enough. I got to play two rounds of golf with Hogan and Hogan just smashed it. And uh, it, it just went right where he wanted it to go. And I was convinced that there were some players that seemed to have that gift to be able to hit it every single day whereas i was as a player always hunting a little bit for it you know i was i was always <laughs> the guy that like came to the golf school on friday with one ball flight and thursday had another and the next friday went back to where he was the previous week you know i, I it was a an elusive thing for me it was a to some degree, a little bit of elusive thing for Nicholas. I mean, I I saw Jack a a lot of times when he was struggling to to hit the ball solid. And so I asked, one night I had the the vision of of these guys that I talked about that always seemed to hit us so good. And 
every one of them had one thing in common. That the, every one of them, the golf swing was very pivot dominated. It wasn't arms and club swinging up and down. It was the pivot and the arms and club were kind of chasing the pivot. Uh, certainly with Sneed, certainly with Trevino, certainly with with Hogan uh, and Knutson. Uh, if you ever watch any videos of George, he, 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 he really took his arms around his body. And so I asked John one day, one night at dinner, I said, John, relative to what we teach, that the arms and the club swing in a different plane than the body pivots, I said, you call that two, two, two planes. I said, what would you say that Ben Hogan did? And he thought for a minute. He said, well, relative to, to what we say, that the arms and clubs swing in a decidedly different plane than the body pivots, he said, I would say the Hogan just threw the whole mass into one plane. And I can remember for the next couple of years, I used to ask John, about the one plane golf swing, throwing the whole mess into one plane. And John would simply get very irritated with me. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't answer. And in one of the loveliest moments of my life, uh, years and years later, in fact, in 2005, when my first book came out, which is called The Plain Truth for Golfers, only took me about 20 years from actually that comment John made to me was made to me in 1978. And I wrote the book in 2004. So that's quite a bit. That's 26 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I, I had figured out the geometric differences between a one-plane swing and a two-plane swing in an astounding thought one night when I realized they're the opposite. That they are the argument piece. Call it the Rosetta Stone, if you like. But they are the defining piece that is at the center point of all argument where one person says, keep your head still. Another person says, move your head behind the ball. One person says, slide your hips. One person said, turn your hips. One person says, pull down with your left arm. The other person says, hit as hard as you can with your right hand and arm right from the top. One person says, bend over at a dress. The other person says, stand up at a dress. One person says, cock the club up quick. The other person says, take it back as low and as wide to the ground as you possibly can. Uh, Someone says, uh, separate the clubs from the shoulder immediately from the top. The other person says, no, keep them glued. Feel the club swing around you. Keep the club in front of you. And I could go on for on and on. Uh, But we've all heard the arguments. uh, And... They're, they're not wrong because you can look at, at, at golf swings and if you look at enough of them, you'll see about any crazy thing you can say about golf work in somebody's golf swing. And so when we all of a sudden say, well, that won't work, I can show you a major champion that it did work in their golf swing. And it was, it was the defining point between saying there are two motors in the golf, golf swing 
arms and clubs one motor, bodies the other motor. And when they swing together, they either swing in somewhat the same plane, meaning the arms and clubs swing around the body as the body pivots, or they don't. They swing in two different planes, meaning the arm and club stays in front of the body and swings up and down while the body pivots. Well, I put that all in a book in 2005. It was called The Plain Truth for Golfers, the first book I wrote. I didn't, I, I didn't write it for years after I'd figured this stuff out because I didn't think anybody would pay any attention to it. And Peter Jacobson kept after me to do it and do it and do it. And I kept saying, no, nobody cares. And he said, they all care. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't Hold on, what else did he say? What else did he say? Oh, <laughs> I wouldn't have done the book without Peter, but I did it. And all of a sudden, I had a good publisher, McGraw-Hill, and all of a sudden, Golf Digest wants to do the excerpt on it, and it became the largest instruction piece they ever did in their magazine. And it, it, it around the world. And the next thing I know, it's become the number one selling sports and recreation book in the world. Interestingly enough, uh, Lance Armstrong, came out with his book the same year and I beat him in, in that category. And it was, <laughs> it was number one in the U S and it's been translated into nine foreign languages and videos done on it and everything. But, but I didn't mean for it to be, I really didn't. Uh, I, I never thought it would take off like that. But anyway, when I say it, it kind of, concluded in, in, in one of the most meaningful moments of my life is I, I sent John a copy of the book with a letter that uh, thanked him so much for him, what he had, all he had done for me. And I talk about John quite a bit in the book. And I got a letter back from John, which I still have framed in my office. But as I virtually am reading that letter, uh, my secretary walks into my office and said, there's a man on the phone with a British accent who won't give me his name, but he said to come into you and said he wants to speak to Lord Nelson. Well, <laughs> I started laughing because that was his nickname for me, which is another long story. But yeah. anyway, uh, I said, John, my gosh, I'm reading your letter right now. Thank you so much. And he said, oh, don't pay any attention to that letter at all. He said, uh, I just glanced through your book and skimmed through it and said all the lovely, saw all the lovely things you had said about me and wanted to tell you how much I appreciated it. And I said, well, my gosh, how much I appreciate it. And he said, well, he said, what happened last night? He said, in the middle of the night, I had to get up and use a restroom and he said on the way back to, to bed he said I, I kind of wasn't sleepy and I saw your book sitting up on on top of my desk and I sat down and I thought well I'll just read this thing and see what young James has to say <laughs> and to be honest with you John said be honest with you I haven't read anybody else's golf book and besides my own in 30 years and he said I couldn't put it down and he said, I've waited for five pots of coffee for a decent hour to call you and tell you that you wrote the book I always wanted to write. You know, Dunks, even when I say that now, it, it, 
it puts shivers in me mm. because John is such a giant in the game and still to this day is to me. And for him to say that I wrote the book that he wish he'd written, I was so flabbergasted, Bunks, when he said that, that I couldn't think of anything to say except, well, damn it, John, every time I'd ask you about the one playing golf swing, all you'd do is get irritated. And he said, well, certainly. He said, I only figured it out about nine hours ago. <laughs> and he said, that's why I'm calling you, to tell you that you have it dead cold right. He said, keeping the right elbow down and in front of you, turning your shoulders flat, no wonder nobody could hit it. Everybody was too shallow and hooking. He said, when you put the tilt in the shoulders and still turn them, let the right elbow fly. Now you could get after the ball from there with an object on the ground. You know, because one of his dearest sayings was, golf is a circular game pointed at an object on the floor. And uh, when, when, when he said that, that meant the world to me. I mean, I, 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 if, a, if the book had sold a million copies, which it hadn't, I mean, which it certainly hasn't, but that wouldn't have meant as much to me as John giving it the green light, saying you did it. Because John, um, John was a two-planer, and whenever he tried to – am I right in saying whenever he tried to swing or emulate Hogan's swing to try and understand it better, he just hooked like mad? Couldn't get it in the air and hooked like crazy. Yeah, because he was just too shallow. The whole thing was too wide and too shallow. In fact, John uh, – Whenever his game got bad and, and he would hook, he would go the opposite way, which is one thing that surprised me why he didn't figure out the one plane swing is because he would go out and practice with a ball below his feet so he could get the swing steeper and get the ball back up in the air and actually mm -hmm. fade the ball. But all he had to do is that's why I understood it immediately is because when he would put the ball below his feet, his shoulders would get steeper. Uh, and uh, I don't think he ever really realized that until right then. He always realized, he always thought it was his arms that got steeper. Well, think about it. If you propped yourself up and turned your shoulders level to the ground with a ball below your feet and then tried to swing your arms up and down enough to hit it with a ball below your feet, you'd fall on your face because you'd need to get your hind end more behind your heels and bend over so you can stay balanced on that uh, downhill lie like that. And, and that's the essence of one of, of, if you will, the setup differences between someone who's, uh, if you will, two plane versus one plane. Uh, the one planer is going to put his butt more behind his heels uh, so when he bends over, he's balanced and now can swing the club around him right there as versus uh, the, the other fellow is going to stand, prop himself more upright with the knees and his butt more in underneath him and uh, propped up. So you, um, you last played with John, if I'm right, you kind of played a recce round with him at the Greenbrier the year before yeah. Ryder Cup. Yeah. So you played with him in what, in 78? Yeah, we, uh, we played there. Uh, one of my old college teammates, Jim Jamison, was the director of golf, and uh, we went. We flew into uh, the Greenbrier 
because they were going to have the Ryder Cup matches there uh, in about three months, and he wanted to see the golf course and play it, uh, and he was the captain. Uh, I think he was the captain twice, but he was the captain mm-hmm. that year uh, there, and so we went up there and played it, yeah. And then when, how long after that, Jim, did you kind of take a extended sabbatical, as it were, from, from teaching? Because I know you didn't fully stop teaching because you had tour players and bits and pieces, and you went to Palm Springs. Am I right in saying that? That's right. That's right. And I, golly, I probably took a leave from teaching from 1983 uh, until really until about 95, okay. 96. I, I was tired of teaching. I wanted to design golf courses. I wanted to build golf courses. I wanted to own and operate golf courses. And l- luckily enough, I got to do all those things uh, and had to learn how to do them. But I, I had a management company and I owned uh, – uh, seven golf courses at one time and uh, not, never made money owning them. Uh, <laughs> but uh, certainly did did all those things and uh, had did not have the success in them. Oh, I had, I've had good success in the design end, but uh, not not to the extent that, that I wanted in, in the ownership and the design and all that kind of stuff. And every time uh, I would come back to teaching, uh, that's really why I never wrote the book all that time. But I'd come back to teaching, like, like the you're talking about, like the teaching and coaching summit where I gave the 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 talk uh, i was out of teaching i believe that was in 1990 or 92 or somewhere in there. And I was still out of teaching then but, but every time been... i every time Hello, i would Jim. come back yeah hello so every time you would come back you'd have success when you were teaching but you were teaching tour players between in the I in was. the 80s and 90s right i was uh-huh a very limited few but peter was certainly one of them and Duffy Waldorf was, and then a, a several LPGA players. But I basically uh, gotten out of the teaching thing and uh, tried to do these other things. But every time I got back to teaching, good things happened. And I didn't want to teach. I really did not. And uh, I'd try all these other things. But if I went to teaching, all doors opened. And... Uh, I'll I'll just say uh, clearly on your podcast. I, I'm a Christian, uh, you know that, and uh, I believe that that God has a plan for our lives. Certainly, a platform for our lives, a platform where where we where we have some influence with people, uh, to where He might have a chance to work through us, and and that platform is right where He wanted me. I mean, He it, I finally surrendered to the fact that. Every time I tried to become uh, something else, uh, doors got closed. And every time I tried to teach, doors opened. And I started to realize also all the influential people in my life 
had been teachers, whether it be Harold Hoffman or Harvey Pennick or, or John Jacobs. And uh, so I just kind of surrendered to it and said, well, that, I guess that's what I'm supposed to do. And uh, several books later and about 100 DVD later, uh, here I am. <laughs> so when, when did Peter or Carol or Marilyn or whoever it was, how did they persuade you, as it were, to return back to the teaching and coaching summits when you saw some stuff uh -huh. that you didn't necessarily agree <laughs> with? And that's why Peter turned around and said, that's why you've got to write the book. That's right. That, that was very interesting. I'm going to say that was around 96, I believe. It might have been 94. But I had been invited back again to the teaching and coaching summit. I had no idea why, because I wasn't teaching or coaching. But they wanted me to do live lessons uh, with Hank Haney at the uh, Superdome in New Orleans on Saturday morning, uh, Saturday from like 1 o'clock till 2.30, and, and bring in the public to watch. And we were using Cayman Bowls uh there and so i came back and and I, and I did that with hank and it was uh, but before that happened i had said to Marilyn, uh, you know when i was last at the teaching coaching summit i came in on friday night and got mic'd up saturday morning nine o'clock gave my 90 minute talk did some questions answered got unmiked headed back to the airport i said Let's go. It's at New Orleans this year. Let's just drive over. Let's spend the whole time. Let's see what these folks are up to. So we went over there, and and I was there, and Carol was there, and and I started hearing what was being taught, and was horrified. I I, I don't know how else to say it. I mean, I was horrified that. They were saying that the worst thing you can do is to get the club stuck behind you and that you had to slow down your body rotation and get your arms out in front of you uh, in order to solve the problem of a club stuck behind you, which those two pieces of information are just the worst two things you could do. Uh, if you're going to slow down your body rotation and get your arms in front of you, you need to swing the club up and down, not around. And uh, I had not done my book at that point, but I certainly knew that. If you were going to swing the club around, you'd better speed up your body rotation and you'd better use your right hand and arm to get that club thrown and hurled and whirled and whipped out from behind you, back out in front of you and back around the other way. And I kept hearing all this stuff, and, and, and Carol was there, and, and I said, Carol, is, is this what's being taught? And she said, yep. And I called Peter that night, and I said, Peter, is it? he said, I've been trying to get you to help my friends, and, you know, you chewed me out good. <clears throat> and so that's when I said, all right, I'll start helping some guys. And I remember Scott McCarron was one of the first ones. Scott had come out on tour and I had seen him oh, a few years earlier and thought he was just a wonderful looking player and it looked so natural and all of a sudden Scott had lost his card he had gone from the top 30 player in the world to he's now 
playing on sponsors' exemptions. And I remember saying to Peter, what in the world happened to Scott? And he said, well, what I've been telling you, he took lessons. I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said, you tell Scott, I'll put him back where it was. I'm not going to teach him a new swing. I'll just put him back where it was. And when I talked to Scott, Scott said, well, I don't know how much that would be worth to me. But it's a long story short. We started working together. And about two months after we started working together, he won two or three times. And so we knew we were on the right track. And same thing happened then with a guy named Tom Pernice. And, uh, uh, Tom had, had kind of lost his card and had, had never had only won one tournament at that point in his career and kept after me. And I started working with Tom and Tom started having, having some success. And then Olin Brown was, uh, uh, golly, was 47 years old when I first met Olin and, uh, had won, I think once he had won colonial or something. And had lost his card for several years and was trying to Monday qualify and get in tournaments where he could on sponsors' exemptions. And I saw him playing with Scott and Nick Price in a practice round, the LA Open. And Olin was actually shanking the ball. And uh, Olin said, I need help, don't I? And I said, Olin, you do, but this is not the time or the place to do it. Here's my phone number if you ever want some help. Well, Friday night, he calls me after the first round. He said, uh, if I come tomorrow, will you help me? And I said, yeah. And he showed up Saturday afternoon in Houston. He said, before we start, I'm just going to tell you this. I may never play another good tournament round of golf in my life. But I'm not going to play with this, with doing what I've been doing for the last five or six years. And I, I said, great, we'll we'll get after it. And uh, golly, we did. And to Olin's credit, uh, he shot a few months later. He shot 59 qualifying for the U.S. Open. Uh, went to U.S. Open at Pinehurst, uh, led it after 36, tied the lead after 54, did not win, but uh, played in the last group with Michael Campbell, who happened to win. But a couple months later, he, he beat Tiger at the Deutsche Bank and won the tournament. Ended up finishing, I believe, 15th on the money list and uh, had, at, at age 48 and had won PGA Tour player, Comeback Player of the Year award. And uh, Peter had won that, and Scott McCarron had won that. And I guess those are the awards that I'm proudest of uh, for the players I've coached is, is when you can take that somebody who's lost it and, and, and give them their gift back, uh, their ability to compete, their ability to uh, go after it. Uh, Peter actually won it twice. He, he won it once when... Uh, we changed uh, from him to a two from a two plane to one plane because of all the body injuries he had, and then he won again when he's forty nine years old uh, on the tour. Uh, and those are, those are great moments when you when you can help somebody uh, really when they think they're done and they're not done and uh, get it back. So I want to, I want to kind of expand a little bit on you know the the two plane to one plane. So Peter came to you as a, as a two-planer. He played in the Ryder Cup as a two-planer. He then 
quit tournament golf because he was injured, right? Right. I, I was teaching him as a two-planer all along. And uh, his uh, lower back had, had been big issues with him. Uh, his left hip was killing him. His left shoulder was killing him. Uh, Peter has some soft tissue uh, inherited-ish problems in which all his soft tissue becomes very brittle. In fact, Peter's got two uh, artificial hips and artificial uh, right knees, had uh, two left shoulder rotator cuff surgeries and nine back surgeries to date. I mean, he's, he's been injured a lot. But he was injured badly uh, in, I'm going to say, 93, and uh, really couldn't play anymore. And at that time, Peter was only uh, 40 years old, 39 years old. And so he started doing television. And after he'd done television for about a year and a half, he said, I, 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 wanna, I, I still want to play. I want to see if I can play. And I said, Peter, <laughs> we were designing golf courses together at that time, and I still do. But I said, Peter, you can't. Your body gave out on you. He said, well, do you think I could make the change in my swing like you did from one from two plane to one plane. I said, and this in 94. I said, Peter, I have, I have no idea whether you can or not. I'm the only person I ever changed from two plane to one plane. And so he would come after the telecasts on Sunday, fly into Houston. And he's a great mimic, by the way. It's not any teaching genius on my part. He's a mimic. And he would sit on his golf bag and watch me hit balls. And then at night, we would watch every one plane swing I could get a video of, from Sam Snead to Ben Hogan to Gary Player to, uh, golly, the great five-time. George Knudsen, I would. But the the one one that influenced me the most was the New Zealand guy that won all the British Opens. Help me here. Peter Thompson. Peter Thompson. Peter Thompson's swing. I think was the one that turned uh, Peter around. But all of a sudden, Peter could just, it was like new life. Uh, no injuries for him, turning his golf swing. And so he quit uh, ABC television and went out to play again in the fall. And uh, we didn't know what to expect. He hadn't really played in two years. And he went out and won his first tournament, the Kapalua International, in the fall. That next winter, all of a sudden, he came along and, and they, he won uh, the AT&T at Pebble Beach. He set the all-time record, which I don't think will ever be broken. Those little bitty greens on AT&T can barely lay down on at Pebble Beach. <laughs> but uh, he set the all-time record, hit 69 greens of regulation in a 72-hole tournament. You know, you try that one. Uh, you know, try that on your local backyard par three course. You know, let alone playing in a tournament at Pebble Beach. He won the next week at Torrey Pines uh, and just kept going. And to make a long story short, he made the Ryder Cup team with a brand new, really a, a one-plane golf swing instead of two. And uh, um, with a month to go in, in, in the year, he's Lady Money winner. And uh, he didn't finish Lady Money winner, but that, somebody overtook him right there at the very end. But... Uh, that was a big success story. I had a big success story changing another fellow named Don Cooley. 
who was a very, very upright player and uh, wanted to play the Champions Tour, but back injuries were killing him and he couldn't. And he asked if I could do the same thing for him I did for Peter. And I gave him the same answer. I have no idea. And I said, I don't change people's golf swings. I, I correct them. In, in your case and in Peter's, because of the injury, you're going to have to change it. And that's the only time I'd really change someone's golf swing is if, if the current one has injured them. And so we set about doing that, and Don went back out and went out and changed the series, won the, the senior U.S. Open. By the way, Olin Brown won the senior U.S. Open also, but won the senior U.S. Open. He won a whole bunch of other tournaments and, and had a nice career on the Champions Tour, uh, which was very rewarding, too. So then, you, but you, uh, Duffy, is it Duffy Waldoff is your longest student? I've been teaching. Uh, I've been teaching him since he was about 20 years old. So Duffy's, what, 56 right now. I've taught, taught him for 36 years. Uh, Peter, I started teaching in 1983. And so this is what yeah, year? Yeah, about the same, uh, 36 years for him too. Yeah. Uh, and what's really cool is... Uh, Duffy and I are, are so close to this day. Peter and I are like brothers. I mean, and, and to be able to have a, a teaching relationship that, that becomes almost as close as family, you know, is, uh, I I'm, feel the same way about Olin Brown. I, I've taught his son now, his, uh, since his son was about 14, his son is, plays the Cornberry Ferry Tour. Um, and is a, is a wonderful player. Uh, and Olin was just here because Olin, Olin's pushing 60 right now. And, and that's about the time when life gets a little tough on the Champions Tour because Olin's never a long hitter. And around 60 is when uh, not too many guys win after that. But he's still dedicated to it. And he was still, he was just here in Houston. We were working together. So, I mean, that was. When I, I, I saw you do the presentation in 2004, um, the only way I could get to you was by shouting out, you know, I'm from London, England, and I know John Jacobs, and you just handed me this piece of paper telling me to go to this place in Scottsdale. Um, <laughs> for the plain truth for golfers, one and two plain golf schools. I mean, it was... <laughs> so I went out there in 2005, and you said, why have you come? And I said, well, I want you to teach me how to teach. And you went, well, I don't do certification. So I said, okay. So I stood in line with 11 other guys. Olin Brown was behind me. I didn't know it was uh -huh. time. I just thought, wow, this guy behind me is really good. <laughs> and then <laughs> you came over to me and you said, well, you've got a beautiful one-plane backswing dunks. But you said your downswing's a beautiful two-plane downswing and those two elements don't mix so you told me one thing you said you've traveled six thousand miles to to for me to tell you one thing and i went no that's not all i'm here for and you went oh why what are you going to do now and i put my club down and just started following you and you turned around and said what are you doing and i said well you said that you don't do certification so i'm just going to watch you teach and you went, oh, well, best you come over here then. 
<laughs> so basically, I used to walk the line behind you, and you were—I was watching you watch the ball flight, then you watch the player and everything else, and then you started watching me watch the ball and everything else, and then you started to ask me a few questions here and there, and that was that was more than enough for me. And then I came back the next year, and uh, I got to watch—I got to partake in a golf school and then watch a golf school which was just awesome. And then the next year I came back to see you in Orlando. And then the next year at Port St. Lucie in 2008, where you were teaching at the teaching and coaching summit, you turned around to me and went, Dunks, I have some good news for you. And I said, what's that? And you went, we're going to do a certification. So I couldn't have been happier. And I came out with George in 2000 and 2009 and we did a level one. Then we did a level two at, at uh, Black Horse and, you know, I've come out at least once a year, every year since then, and been fortunate enough to have you and Chris and and Mike and everyone else come over from from the US. And you've you've created this plain truth for golfers family. And it's interesting that you say that all your relationships with your mentors has been like a, you know, a father and son relationship or best friends relationship or brother's relationship, and you see that with your players. And that's what I feel you created and I wanted to be a part of, and I see everyone that comes to the summits that that's what we want to be part of. We want to learn from each other and we look after each other and we, we help each other get better with, with our students and ourselves as well. You know, it's not just for the lesson tiers I've explained already. It's off the golf course as well. Um, but that wasn't what you set out to achieve, Jim, was it? Because as you said to me in 2005, you don't do certification. So no. where, where did that come from? Well, I, I, I think there's only so much someone can absorb in a short period of time. Uh, and uh, they can get better, but I didn't want to put a stamp of approval on someone who had only been exposed to what I could, could explain to them and help them with in a short period of time. And Chris O'Connell, who I met uh, because he was caddying for Peter and trying to play mini tour tournaments. Uh, and I had become very close and Mike LeBove, who's a wonderful teacher and I had become very close and Chris introduced me to a college teammate of his at Notre Dame, who was uh, a very good golfer, a very smart man, and very, uh, very, very, very adept at IT stuff, at computers and programming, and owned an IT company. And uh, we sat down one day, and he said to me, he said, I think I could take what you know and do and work it into a program uh, we'll call it the matrix that you could put all of your information in an accessible understandable video and written format to whereby teachers around the world could access your information 24 7 on their phone and I was all blown away. And I said, uh, well, why do you think you could do that for me and you couldn't do that for uh, 
say Butch Hart. He said, because all of your information is a, an on or an off. It's, that's how computers run. And he said, it's a binary code. He said, you're either a one-planer or you're a two-planer. That all of your impacts, I had, I had started writing my third book at this time, which is called Solid Contact. And uh, uh, it explains my plus and minus code. And I had given that plus and minus, the elements of that plus and minus code in 1990 in my talk at the Teaching and Coaching Summit in uh, Nashville. And here we are now in the 2008, so 18 years later. And he said, every ball flight mistake comes out of an impact that is either two plus or it's two minus. And everything in a golf swing that contributes to that is either a plus or a minus. And so he took my concept of pluses and minuses and made it into a computer program. And all of a sudden, we developed what was called the Matrix with over 360 videos in it. Each one of those videos is transcribed, so you can look at the salient, if you will, cliff notes of each one of them. And instructors all of a sudden had a knowledge base now that any question they had or any problem they had about either swing, swing shape or ball flight and impact, any question they had about a contributing issue that might also cause that from an earlier point in the swing was identified. And so he developed this thing called the matrix, which there's no other tool like it in all of golf. It is a fabulous tool and it is for only for our instructors for their education. And once we had that, I was confident that we could get some instructors, and if they really wanted to learn how to teach, we had the tool for them. And uh, some instructors come, and uh, they, they just want a limited amount of information. That's fine. We've had over 500 of them come around the world. <clears throat> but out of that 500, we have a family, if you will, of about 125 that have really really stuck with the program. They help one another. We have a Facebook. We have a Facebook a link that is only for instructor, uh, certified instructors called the Inner Circle. Uh, we have a summit every year that uh, those instructors from around the world come. And I, I don't, I don't think you've ever missed one. If you have, I, I, no, I, I don't. I've been to everyone. And uh, it's guys like you and guys like John Vallelay, who just made a level three, mm -hmm. you know, level one, we test them on. And we're hoping everybody can pass level one. Level two has less than a 25% pass rate because level two is tough. That's uh, advanced information. And that's also live teaching every day. And that's plus, when. Plus it's uh, like. Jim, I had to give a lesson to a shallow slicer in front of you. <laughs> it Where doesn't get much nerve, more nerve-wracking than that. Yeah, but uh, level two is where we really distinguish the people that, that 
are serious about the program, want to become great. Out of the 500 people who come through our program, we've only had, I believe it's 17 or 18, make it level three. Level three is not a test, as you know. Level three is a, a, is a grade given based upon your professional performance. Uh, what your peers think about you, what your students think about you, uh, articles, publications, uh, awards. Uh, it, so it's about you earn level three. And uh, out of the north of England, in fact, the northern England uh, women's uh, golf coach, who also in 2018 was named England's coach of the year, uh, was our latest level three, uh, John James Vallelay. And uh, I, I'm not sure since he, he, since he got his level one and two, has he ever missed a summit? And I know what a hardship it is when you see people like Giuliano Tadiato from Belgium who missed his very first one this year because of health problems, but come every year. Uh, you, Duncan, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a strain if you live in America to travel to wherever we're doing them, and it's expensive. But, but when we have that family together, it's, it's a joyous three days. I mean, I, I've never seen people so happy, so committed to one another, so committed to learning. We bring in outside people, as you know, uh, and we may agree and we may disagree with that information, but I, I've never been one to be afraid of an opposing point of view because I, at my age, I think I've, I, it's not that I'm smart, but I've just seen, seen about all of it. And uh, I know that there's more than one way to do it. And I'll take my mentor there on that when I say what to do what, and that's to correct, to produce a correct repetitive impact, period whether you're Bubba Watson or whether you have a beautiful golf swing, say like Adam Scott. Uh, I, I, I tease people and I say, we, we at the plain truth don't do cosmetic surgery. We're not trying to make your swing prettier. We're not trying to make it more orthodox. What we are trying to do is make it more correct and repetitive. Perfect. Jim, a couple of other questions for you. Um, if you could play one more round of golf, I think I know the answer to this. Where would it be? Well, you know, I've designed a lot of golf courses, but it really wouldn't be one of my designs. It'd be at the, the golf course I, I learned how to play golf on in my hometown of Hutchinson, Kansas. It's called Prairie Dunes. And it's one of the greatest gems in the entire game of golf. It's always listed in the top. 10 or top 20 great golf courses of the world. And it, and it truly is. I think it's probably the reason I got into golf course design because when you, when I grew up playing the golf course, I didn't realize how great it was. And I only started realizing how great it was when I got into college and then on the tour and was playing a whole bunch of courses. And I knew none of them were as good as Prairie Dunes. And <laughs> so I, that's where I'd like to play that. If I only had one more round to play. And if you if you only had one more round and you, you could play in a four ball, you don't have to play in the four ball, who would you have in the who would you play the last round with? Well, you know, I'd like to play with my three mentors. I'd like to get Harold Hoffman and John Jacobs and Harvey Pennick out there and and you know what? 
I'm not sure that anybody could ever laugh as hard as we would because it would be so much fun because the three guys I've named, uh, people often tell me, Jim, you're a great storyteller. Why well, I can't even hold a candle to John Jacobs or Harold <laughs> Hoffman or Harvey Pennick. Now there's some storytellers. And, uh, uh, so I, I, and I love all three of them so much. So that's, I'd pick, I'd pick my three mentors and get on with it. And then lastly, Jim, if there's anyone else you'd like to kind of thank for helping you with your career, with any different aspects of your career, um, then that, you know, the podcast or is yours, as they say, for a couple of minutes, if you, there's any other people that you want to mention. Well, you know, Chris O'Connell has, uh, 18 years ago, he came to me and he said, you know, he said, you need to build a company and uh, I want to help you do it because I believe in what you do. And uh, Chris has been the man that did it. Yeah, it might have been my information. Uh, Chris has contributed a great deal of information, but Chris has, com com is, has committed his passion uh, I love Chris like he's my son, and uh, I, I, I can never thank him enough. Uh, Peter Jacobson, uh, wow. I, I wouldn't even come close to have accomplished and had the career I've had without Peter. Uh, Peter is the dearest man. Uh, so many people will ask me, what, what's Peter like in private? Because he's so much fun in public. I said, well, how much fun do you think he is? He's more so. <laughs> he's the most honest, gentle, caring person you could ever be around. Uh, and so I, I'm, 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 I'm very, very lucky to have, to have had my friendship with Peter, with Olin. I'm very lucky to have formed the friendships I have that have sustained me like you. And M.I., Matinee Idol, George, uh, <laughs> and, and others, Julio Tadiato. Uh, there's so many in, in, in Krista Dutton. And I, 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 if I start naming, I, I, I keep naming all the time, but uh, that are so, so important to me. And uh, finally, uh, when I was 50, I'm 76 now, when I was, when I was 50, I... Uh, I became a believer in Christ, and uh, there was a man that uh, studied and taught the Word of God better than anybody that I've ever met. Uh, his son now does his ministry, but he's, he's, his name was uh, Robert Thiem, and uh, he was the youngest man in World War II to make the rank of colonel, and uh, so everybody used to refer to him as the colonel. But the colonel uh, was a very, very straightforward, dead honest man. He'd tell you the truth whether you wanted to hear it or not. And I've always admired that, I think, more than anything else uh, as a human trait. Uh, people that live their life in honesty and truth. And uh, so I'd be very remiss if I, if I didn't say that the colonel uh, has had maybe the biggest influence of all in my life. And uh, at that point, have we run out of sensible information, Jim? <laughs> Probably have. <laughs> Jim, from me and from everyone else involved in The Plain Truth, and I think 
for a lot of, well, probably thousands of golfers around the world. Uh, we also have to thank you for everything that you've done for us. Um, you know, I also believe one of the things I put that everyone should have a Peter Jacobson in their life because he is unbelievable, unbelievably awesome. I feel very fortunate to have to have met most of the people, if not all the people that you have uh, that you have mentioned. I wish I'd met Mr. Pennick and and Harold Hoffman. I wish you know, wish I could have seen you seen a couple of the golf schools with you and maybe with Hank and a few others and. Uh, but we, you know, I always enjoy our time together. I know that we speak on and off um, outside of outside of golf and bits and pieces. So it's always a pleasure for all the teachings that you've ever given me. Just a huge, huge thank you, Jim. And uh, I look forward to uh, catching up with you again real soon. Watch your heart. Great to visit with you, Dunks. Thanks, Thanks so much. Uh, before we leave real quick. Yeah, I'd be terribly remiss if I did not name my wife Marilyn. I, I was I, wondering I, if she was going to get a shout. I cannot, cannot believe that I went down that path because she's not only my wife, but my very best friend. She has been with me every step of the way. Uh, in fact, she's <laughs> been my primary guinea pig about the golf mm. swing because <laughs> I would come up with some idea and I'd say, now let me see you try it so I can see in full. And she'd hit seven or eight, ten balls, try and do what I told her to do. And I'd say, whoops, never mind. Uh, we won't be doing that, you know, because <laughs> I would say I probably chased uh, 80 bad ideas down dark hallways before I'd get one good one. And I think that's kind of the way it is in golf. We, we learn more from, from our errors than we do from our successes. And I cannot thank my wife enough for, and, and, and Carol Mann, uh, what a stalwart, fantastic human being and friend she was. So yeah. I, I, I don't want to leave off those two. No. And uh, thanks again, Dunks. I sure appreciate it. No problem at all, Jim. Thanks ever so much for being my final guest on How I Teach Golf. And for me, it's been an absolute pleasure to have learned from you, got to know you, and uh, spend time with you. Take care. Cheers.